The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a bonus episode of the James Whale Retrospective Series. Yes, we're doing two bonus movies. We're going to be doing The Road Back, and we're also going to be doing The Wives Under Suspicion with Rod Barnett. But I'm doing The Road Back with Troy Howarth, who is a, earlier on, you heard him when he, we talked about The Great Garrick. He's a writer, movie commentator. He's written books like Assault on the Assault on the System, the Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter, Murder by Design, the Unsane Cinema of Dario Argento, and a whole bunch of other books. And you've done commentaries on various different movies. Troy, how you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Um, um, for listeners wondering, um, my internet's down. I'm tethering this on the phone, so hopefully everything on this recording sounds good for you guys it's the best i can do on the, the internet just went down like literally minutes before troy and i started to record <laughs> well we're we're talking about a cursed film so maybe it's appropriate that this should be a cursed uh, a cursed recording that's i never thought of it that way but you know that could be right maybe i gotta be careful where i watch this film then you know i don't want to bring back the undead and things like that <laughs> heaven forbid but, um, Troy, what's been up with you? I know you have a lot of things in the hopper. Anything you can talk about? I have a new book that I've finished that we're, you know, getting towards uh, getting into the layout phase about Umberto Lenzi, the Italian director, um, starting up another project in collaboration with an Italian uh, film historian, uh, Eugenio Arcalani. Uh, we're going to be doing a book called Unsung Heroes of Italian Cinema that's going to focus on four different directors who aren't as well known, but who, you know, are interesting and we're going to try to shed some light on them. Um, as far as commentaries go, been very busy, but unfortunately most stuff I can't really talk about right now because they haven't been announced yet. That's why I always ask, what can you talk about? I don't know. I don't want to put any pressure on you and those kind of things, but at least we know you have a couple one book that'll be coming out relatively soon and another one in the works and, um, listeners, you know, you can, if you just, Search Troy's name, you'll see the books pop up and everything else. I mean, it's it's out there, you know, for, for everybody to readily purchase and that kind of stuff. And, Troy, you've also some sometimes frequent different conventions with your books too, don't you? I've done the Monster Bash several times, um, obviously not since COVID. I'm still not comfortable with going into, you know, crowded settings and things like that with, with people I don't know. Um, so I don't know if I'll be doing those again or not, but I've, I've done the monster bash several times. Always had a fun time there selling books and just, um, spending money that I probably don't need to be spending, but always having a good time. That's the thing. Monster bash is always a fun time, you know, and yeah, I agree with you. You go there, think you're going to make your money at your table. And then next thing you know, you're breaking even if, if all goes well. <laughs> yeah, usually, but it's all part of the fun. I mean, um, I often thought with the Monster Bash, you know, if I would have seen something like that when I was a kid, you know, I, I would have absolutely lost my mind because 
all these tables with movies and things that are, um, well, they're readily available now. But back, you know, when I was a little kid in the 80s, uh, oh, my goodness, I would have gone insane seeing tables like that with some of those movies on them. But, you know, we live in a different world now. So it's still kind of fun to browse through them, though. It is. And, and there are movies that are hard to find and actually hard to find good copies of. And speaking of that, The Road Back by James Whale is there is a listeners there is a restored version nobody can watch it it's in the library of congress and for some reason it's never been released to the general public so we're watching still the 1937 version on youtube and it's um um it's an interesting experience watching this youtube youtube version it's not it's not the best pristine transfer we can get it's pretty it's, it's back to the days when we used to use the rabbit ears on the TV to get the station that you don't normally get type quality is the way I would look at it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk more about the, uh, the different edits and so forth and uh, the confusion that seems to be around about what's available versus what isn't available. Um, but unfortunately, and I, we talked about this a bit last time when I was on about the great characters, but there's a lot of whale stuff that's unfortunately difficult to see. Um, movies like Journey's End, um, if you want to see a, a good-looking copy of that, good luck. Although, up until relatively recently, it was you know it seemed impossible to see a really pristine version of The Old Dark House, and now we have this beautiful Blu-ray restored version, which looks as good as Frankenstein and the Invisible Man. So, uh, never say never. It's always possible, but there is... I've, I've never understood why some of the studios will put out box sets for directors not to uh, not to knock them at all, but I, I'm not sure what their kind of commercial vi- uh, viability is. You know, something like you know Fox putting out a box set of um, Frank Borzaki films, for example, um, whereas Universal has a bunch of key James Whale films. Uh, not all of them, but it has a bunch of them. That would seem like a no-brainer. You know, put out a, a James Whale box set. Um, you know, the the non-horror stuff, the stuff that people have read about, but in many cases haven't seen, you know, um, One More River and Remember Last Night. I mean, I am happy to say that uh, that, that there is some stuff coming. Uh, I'm aware of, uh, of at least one uh, really charming James Well film that's finally going to get a release, hopefully this year. But there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been released, and uh, this is certainly a big one, although it's difficult to talk about this one in a sense because it's almost impossible to really assess it uh, based on what we have to work with. I agree with you there. It it makes it, it this will make it a little tough. Well, we're going to talk about the film we did see, and then we'll talk about what we've read is in the restored version and what what is out there. I mean, because we know it's there. It's in the Library of Congress. It has been shown, so people have seen it. So this is not like it's some some mythical beast that that nobody could ever find or see. It is there. It's just depending on somebody wants to put it out. And I agree with you. There are certain films that we'll get multiple releases and restorations and all these other things that are nice and they're good to have. But I mean, how many versions do you need of that particular film or whatever, when you could start to work on films that are important, at least for that creative, to know that director and to know their work and to see it in a better light would be, would be nice. I mean, it would be nice to see the director's version of the road back you know, instead of the version that we are going to see, which was um, corrupted. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll ever see the original 
cuts. Um, James Curtis in his book, Bell Whale, indicated that's probably not likely. Um, you know, the, the original version that Whale turned in was even watered down slightly, but well, we'll talk about that more later on. Uh, certainly, there are other edits and so forth, and the version that's floating around now is not really reflective of what he wanted to do. I mean, re-releasing films, uh, I'm fine with it as long as you can do it better. If you can give us a better chance or if you can add in better extras, um, treat it with a little bit more respect. I mean, it took them long enough to finally give a movie like The Black Cat, the Edgar Ulmer film, uh, a nice version with uh, commentary tracks, things like that. So by all means, continue putting them out if you're going to do better by them. But yeah, there are there are a lot of films that, and, and in some cases, you have to wonder what kind of mate- uh, shape are the materials in. Um, something like Journey's End, for example, does the negative still exist? You know, is there, if, if there's not a negative, is there at least a workable print and what kind of money? You know, it's a business at the end of the day and there, it, it costs a lot of money to restore a film that has extensive damage done to it. Um, you know, for years, for example, The Curse of Frankenstein, which is a very important uh, horror film, um, was available only in really subpar editions because the, the available elements were in such bad shape. Uh, they finally restored it just recently within the last year. Um, still not perfect. It still could do with more work. Um, but again, that's a lot of money. And uh, it's it's not something that they're always going to be willing to take a chance on, especially when you start getting into some of these films that don't really have the cult value. Um, a lot of whale stuff seems to have been sadly somewhat forgotten. So I'm glad that you're doing this podcast for that reason, because it's nice to see some of the lesser-known films being celebrated along with the inevitable Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, you know, everybody knows those films. Everybody's talked about those films to death, but some of these other ones have been comparatively ignored. Oh, I agree. And that that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do it because everybody knows his big two or four, depending on the invisible man and the old dark house. And then after that, it starts to get for the average moviegoer. What are they going to know? The vast majority of them are not going to know these other films that we've been doing. And, um, and I've been enjoying the road because a lot of these I, I'd seen before. Actually, I'd say a lot of these. Some of these ones I've seen before, but never associated them with James Whale because I saw them, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. And now I'm watching them, and I'm, you, you can see him as a director. And, and, I, and for the longest time, I think I, like a lot of other people, just thought of him only as a director of the horror movies, which is only a small percentage of his overall work. And I think that's the thing that I'm hoping that people that have been going through all the episodes have started to realize that, you know, he actually did a whole bunch of different things, comedies and musicals yeah. and dramas. And, and that's, that's the, the key element. And with the road back, he was looking at this from what I've read to be one of his big pictures, like the, the, the one, you know, like, uh, and, you can see a lot of the work in there, especially having seen Journey's End and knowing that he served in World War One was in the trenches. You can see a lot of that brought to life, and it's it's um. So I I think we're able. I think I'm able to assess and I get an idea of what he was going for, and what it would have been in the finished product, and or in the restored version or whatever version we want to talk about. I think. I'm, I'm very happy that I've watched this film and then I put it on there. I think it's, it's a worthwhile film. It's a good film to watch. 
and it's a film that gives you an idea what I, I, people that have been listening to my podcast long enough to know how much I hate the suits that, that get involved with the creative thing. And this is a film that's a prime example of suits getting involved. Well, this was the, this is the film that Whale did um, at Universal after Lemley had sold off the studio. Uh, Carl Lemley and, and Junior Lemley, of course, uh, you know, intimately was a very kind of, you know, uh, nepotism sort of run studio, but that wasn't unusual. It was true of a lot of studios. And they'd sold it off to a, a gentleman named Charles Rogers, I believe, um, who just didn't have the sympathy for Whale and his kind of exacting standards and his uh, uh, sometimes less than less than terrific uh, sort of personality. I mean, he could be difficult. There's no question. He um, he wasn't always the nicest of, of men. I mean, you know, ask, if you ever would talk to Sarah Karloff, she has a thing or two to say about the way Whale treated her father on Frankenstein. Uh, he was rather sadistic towards him. Um, he could be very snobby. I mean, it was funny because he came from a very poor background and he reinvented himself as a gentleman, uh, you know, quote unquote gentleman, uh, upper crust, uh, which he was not. He came from a very humble background. Um, but he had this sort of snobby attitude towards Carlisle because Carlisle was a truck driver and, you know, did these things. And it, 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 there was this, this kind of, you know, weird quality to him that came out at times. He could be very tough. He could be very, um, very difficult. And part of the reason that this movie ended up the way that it was, you know, financially was because it, it went drastically over budget and over schedule. Um, and of course, as we know, ultimately was changed numerous times as well. So although I'm given to understand that it performed well at the box office, uh, it was just one of those things where so much money had been poured into it that it just really wasn't good enough. So he, it wasn't surprising that he kind of fell into a difficult time with the new regime at Universal and he wasn't done at Universal after this, I and mean, he did more stuff for them as late as uh, Green Hell in 1940. Um, but certainly that great period of time that, that was under Lemley really was from 1931 to 1936. And then after that, things got a little little bit more complicated, let's say. And this was certainly the great casualty of that. I mean, if you've ever seen Gods and Monsters, which I'm sure you have, um, there is a scene in the film, and it, of course, it's a very heavily fictionalized film, as, as you know. Um, it's not a documentary, but there is a scene where Ian McKellen, as well, is, is talking about this movie in very sort of, you know, impassioned terms that this was something that was going to be his masterpiece. It was going to be his big film. And don't forget, too, it's a sequel um, to All Quiet on the Western Front, which was a big, popular, and critical hit, one best picture in 1930. So there was a big prestige factor attached to this story. Um, it, it applied to him and appealed to him on the level of obviously having been in the uh, in the army. Um, he'd risen to ranks uh, to become a second lieutenant, and he ended up being captured by the Germans in the POW from August of 1917 until the end of the war. So, you know, he he had reason to feel certain things, and he latched on to certain themes that were present in Eric Maria Murmark's book. Um, but there was a kind of very strong not so much anti-German, but anti-Nazi theme that runs through the book. Uh, it's, it's not that the book was, you know, attacking the Germans as a whole, but certainly those people that supported and uh, helped to make it possible for things that ended up happening uh, was, was very much attacking them. And that was something that he responded to and was very attached to and very passionate about. But obviously that ruffled some feathers. And so here we are, you know, looking at a film that in many respects 
has been demasculated down through the years. And for listeners wondering, this is based on the book The Road Back by um, Eric Maria. Remark. Remark, thank you. Eric Maria Remark, who, a German writer who wrote this back, you know, to talk about, again, the experiences of the soldiers coming back from World War One, And um, the book is, I've not read the book from what I've read about the book. It's a more pessimistic version, more... Um, how the soldiers came back and were really just totally changed by their experiences and how the society they came back to did not seem to change. It did not seem to learn from these the, the, the problems of war. And if you look at that message, that message is in the movie and it does hold true. Not as, not as much as it is in the book, but it is in the movie where they, they come back and it just seems like people are like, Oh, that was the war. You you could, you know, it's different there. Now we're here. And like, it's, and they, they expect these people to come back, these soldiers to come back and just flick a switch on and off. Like, Oh, you're on the war. Now you're off war. And suddenly you can just readjust. And for a movie that came out in 1937, a lot of the themes in it are so more important, so recognized and important today that we realize that soldiers going out and coming back from these things, um, how they had that PTSD, but we didn't know, but nobody used those terms back then. Um, how, how they, how they, they coped and these four soldiers each coming back and they're talking about more, but mainly they're the four, the main cast is four and how they go back into society and how society handles them coming back and how things have changed and how their worldview has changed. When you go as young men, literally boys out of school, you know, no, they didn't have anything to finish their school. They have to come back and go to school. So they must've been like, I guess the equivalent of a junior or senior in high school for us. And they go away for three or four years, then come back and are expected to reincorporate in <clears throat> seamlessly. And I, and I thought the movie did a very good job of that. Yeah. I mean, that whole theme, I mean, that's applicable to any war. I mean, this is this certainly dealing specifically with the, the sort of German experience. Um, during the First World War, but I mean, you, you know, look at Vietnam and look at uh, Iraq and, and various other things, look at the things that are happening today, you know, the way they're going to impact people for years to come. Um, you know, PTSD, as you say, wasn't something that was, um, you know, identified and, and had that name at that time, but you can see it in the film. I mean, there, there are moments in the film that address that, and I don't know if that's the first example of that or not. There may well be earlier films that, that kind of, uh, alluded to that that I'm not familiar with, but it is very prescient in many respects, and it still applies today. So the overall kind of theme of the film and that idea of reassimilating into society and uh, the dehumanizing effect of war, you know, the way that it, um, the way that it can strip people of their humanity and their ability to interact with other people, is incredibly uh, prescient to this day. There are parts of this film that hold up really, really well. There are parts of it where you can see whales technique. There's a really beautiful shot where the camera sort of booms up to the crane shot up into the air to look down over this big group of people. It's a very, very impressive shot. Um, there's, there, there are sequences where you can see his craftsmanship and the emotional connection to the material is there and scenes that really, there's a very impressive battle sequence towards the beginning of film, for example, which is definitely his work. But interspersed with that, there's a lot of stuff that has been kind of 
watered down and added scenes were, were done later on by another director and another writer. Um, this is one of the reasons that we know that the version that's floating around now on YouTube that you can access is not the original version because it has the uh, co-writing credit given to Charles Kenyon, who was not part of the original uh, concept at all. It had been adapted by R.C. Sheriff, of course, who was part of you know, Journey's End and was a trusted whale collaborator. So this was somebody that came in and was uh, you know, basically hired to add in some comedy scenes, um, some very hokey romantic scenes, uh, a new ending, for example, that's uh, extremely, extremely weak and badly acted. Um, these are not scenes that whale directed. So it's, again, one of those difficult things where you're watching and it's like, okay, I can see where there was a really good film here. There are parts of it that are really, really strong. Um, if you've ever seen All Quiet on the Western Front, maybe it wasn't quite as good as that, but it wasn't that far off. But there were problems even with the original version, too. And one of the big problems that Whale had was that he decided that he wanted to have an unknown actor to play the lead. And he ended up settling on an actor named John King. And he realized partway through the shoot that this was a big mistake, that King just didn't have the uh, the acting chops to be able to play that role effectively. And, and that was going to hobble the movie no matter what. Um, but King is better in the scenes that, you know, seem to have been directed by Whale versus those reshot scenes that were done later where he is unbearably stiff um, and, and it really does damage the film. So, again, it's it's one of those things, if you go into it knowing these things, you can at least appreciate and understand what was done. But if you were to go into it cold without that knowledge, you might think, oh, boy, you know, Whale would start to really lose it around this time, which I, I don't think is really fair at all. And I, I definitely concur with your conclusion that whale does not lose anything at this point, you know, and as, as you and I both talked about the great Garrick, which comes after this, you know, that we know that he did not lose it at all. Um, sometimes you make a casting error, so to speak, you know, you think, you know, somebody's able to perform to a certain level and they're not able to, or you think you can mold the person into the performance you want, which I think, if we look at the past, there's times I think where whale has done that in prior movies where he's taken somebody and was able to guide them and teach them like journey's end classic example, where he was able to take the lead male actor and try to mold them and guide them through and teach them those things. Cause he was being a former theater actor and director and stuff like that. He knew he could, it was in his wheelhouse. And, and I think that's what he was attempting to do with Joe King, but I was really drawn in with Richard Cromwell as Ludwig. I felt that, I thought that was a good character. And, and the interesting thing is I'm not sure if you noticed this in the beginning, you see all these guys at the beginning and they're all sharing screen time. So you don't really know exactly who's supposed to be the main lead. And until really they start to get to, literally on their road back, you know, from the trenches to there. And that's when you start to develop. And I don't think it's really until they get back to the city that you find that you finally figure out, okay, this is the person that we're following now. I think before it was an ensemble where you had those two as being the main two, and then you had two subplots going or three subplots going on behind them. But I think they were supposed to almost be equally the lean. That's the way I was looking at it. And that kind of helped me get through John King's performance was Richard Cromwell's performance. I thought both in the war part and in the post part was underutilized in the post part, but was definitely there. I'm not sure if maybe he ended up some on the cutting room floor because you said with the um, reworking. That's possible. I, I know there are a bunch of actors who were cut from the, from the, you know, the version that we've seen. Um, 
there were about a dozen actors, I believe, according to James Curtis, uh, some of whom are actually still credited on materials for the film uh, that are not in it. Um, so uh, that's quite possible that uh, Cromwell's performance may have suffered through some of those uh, cuts as well. I, I think that's entirely likely. I mean, we know the original ending was, was quite different and sounds like it would have been very interesting. Um, and that definitely did feature the two of them, uh, King and, and Cromwell. Um, where they're walking through the city and they see um, a group of children being sort of trained by a uh, uh, a dwarf, uh, a sort of militaristic dwarf, and he's sort of you know teaching them uh, how to do military maneuvers and things like that. And they sort of look at each other and say, "Isn't this all kind of ridiculous?" And that sort of thing, which is just starting a line under the childishness and the uh, ludicrousness of, of war and how it's you know it's just this endless cycle and it, there's really there's nothing really good to be said of it. It's just, you know, destructive thing, which was kind of um, a cynical, not cynical, uh, cynical is the wrong word. That, that implies something different. I think a more realistic ending. Um, it's a darker ending. It's something that wouldn't have really uplifted the spirits of people coming out of the theater in 1937. So, of course, that was an early, uh, an early casualty. So they, they add in this uh, kind of romantic scene with John King at the end, um, which is just hopelessly, hopelessly terrible before going into one of those sort of old-fashioned newspaper montages. That's not Wales material. That wasn't what was originally intended to be there. Um, so Cromwell definitely, I think, ended up suffering through some of this as well. Um, you know, James Curtis in his book says that uh, Cromwell should have been the lead, and I, I would agree with him. I think he would have been much, much better. But I do understand Wales' thought process that he wanted to have somebody that, you know, I mean, he, he had been acting for a while. He was a contract player at Universal, so it wasn't like this was his first film, but this was his first, you know, sort of big lead role. And uh, I think he was hoping and, and banking on the idea that I can get this guy out there and give him a good, juicy, dramatic role and guide him through it, and he'll do fine. And just realized early on, not working. Um, it was too late to recast. They were already in trouble anyway, going over budget, over schedule. So, unfortunately, um, no matter what version you see, I suspect it's going to be hobbled by John King, but maybe um, some of his better material ended up being cut too. You know, it's, it's one of those things, again, difficult to say. And, that, and that's something we'll never know, but I, I, I think the ending that was originally intended would have been something, yes, that's very rare to see in 1937, but it's something that you would have saw in 1973 or anywhere in the 70s where it goes with the realistic ending. And I know for myself, I'm happy with, I'm happy with fantasy endings. If it fits the movie and I'm happy with realistic endings. If it fits the movie, I'm happy with either one. If it fits the movie, the ending they came up with, yeah. with this one did not fit with what we were seeing prior to that. It was, um, came, it, it just was there. It, it doesn't really work. And then you go into that montage, which makes it, you can look at the road back as being two different ways uh, in my mind. The road back could be obviously the, with the way you could look at straight on the road back to going home, but also you could say it's the road back to war because it, you, when you get back to the civilization, they can see where everything's ramping up and it's getting ready for it all to happen again. So in a sense, we're on the road back from war and then we're on the road back to war. And, and I'm not sure if that duality was something, you know, that, I think from the book and from the original ending, it was something that was definitely going to be there. And I think that's the way I was looking for was that double meaning where people, you know, when yeah. they think about the movie, they can see those two ways to go. 
Yeah, I would agree. And of course, it wasn't the first time Whale had had an ending compromise. I mean, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein were originally meant to end very differently. Um, you know, they they didn't they weren't intended to have kind of uplifting finales where the hero and heroine walk into the sunset and you know everything is okay. They were originally meant to be much more downbeat. Um, so unfortunately, it was one of those things. Even with the kind of latitude that Le- the Lemleys gave Whale. Um, there were times where, you know, again, commercial necessity dictated that, you know, this was a little too much, you know, we need to go back and change this because, I mean, as, as you, again, you would know very well the ending of Bride of Frankenstein is funny because, you know, if you pay close enough attention, you can see in the wide shots that Colin Clive is still in there when the, when the laboratory is, you know, collapsing and everything's exploding. So, you know, but from a commercial point of view, it made better sense. So they would change these things. So. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. And again, it's it's the art and commerce aspect of filmmaking, which is a just a practical reality. I mean, you know, when you're playing with other people's money, um, you sometimes have to sort of kowtow to what they want. And also you want your films to do well. Uh, no, no director sets up to make a flop because if you make a flop, it makes it hard to get work. Whereas if you make a film that's well-received, you're more likely to be able to go out and make what you want to make. So, you know, Whale was good at kind of negotiating with the studio so for example um you know they desperately wanted the sequel to frankenstein so he said okay let me make uh, one more river i want to make one more river they didn't care about that 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 was that was the last thing in the world they were interested in some john galsworthy uh you know sort of class system melodrama they didn't care about that but he wanted to make it and they let him make it but there too unfortunately because there were a lot of sort of kinky elements in that that had to be watered down as well so you know, uh, even as, as supportive as they were, there were things that they couldn't get around. Sometimes it was the censorship, and also, again, sometimes it was just pure commercial consideration. <clears throat> which, which makes me wonder, because Whale was definitely a very intelligent man and knew the game, knew the system he was in. Like definitely at, at certain points, after the first couple of movies, he had to know the system. And it makes you wonder if he would purposely push the envelope way Harder than he wanted, than, than even he thought. He's like, well, if they give me all this, great. I really want to get this, this, and this. But let me throw some stuff that's so far out there that when they cut back, they'll cut back to what I was hoping to get initially. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like when, when you're negotiating. And I'm, I'm wondering if he filmed certain things and did certain things, and not just this film, but other films, to purposely go a little bit beyond the boundary. And that way, when they bring him back, he still gets roughly what he wanted anyway. I don't know. What do you think? No, I think that's likely. I think that's entirely possible because um, that happened a lot. I mean, there, there's so many different examples of that where filmmakers knew they would put something in there that was really, really over the top because they figured, okay, that's going to get the small bin out of shape. And I, I don't care if they remove that, but that'll take their eye away from this other thing. Um, so I think that's entirely possible as well. But I do think that, you know, Whale was somebody who really, he, he wanted to do films that had, I think, a, a kind of an impact. I think he wanted to uh, hit them hard with, with certain subjects. And I think particularly with a movie like this, again, based on his own experiences in the war, uh, his own lingering feelings about everything that had taken place during the war and, and the things that were gearing up. I mean, you know, he was well aware of what was happening. Um with the with the rise of Nazi power and, and everything that was going on in Germany at that time, um, I think he really wanted to do something hard hitting, and I think I think he figured 
that if he could get it out there, it would, you know, it would have been an Oscar winner. It would have won him awards. It would have got him a lot of acclaim and praise and so forth and take him up even that little bit further from where he was at. But unfortunately, that didn't end up happening. And what ended up happening was uh, the studio just completely lost all faith in the movie, um, ended up, you know, uh, insisting on various different cuts, doing the retakes, uh, bringing in other people and, and just diluting it. Although, again, you can still see there are glimmers here and there of little flashes of what the film could have been and what it may still be in the original um, preview cut that is um, that is out there, that has been preserved and has been restored, but which you and I can't see. So, I mean, you can only guess. One day, hopefully. Now, we're, we're, we're dodging around the comedy parts. We might as well, we might as well just hit it head on. And... Obviously, James Well, a lot of his movies, he does have comedic elements, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. That's normal, and you need that to, to take care of the tension. And when you get somebody like Andy Devine, you know, or Devine in there, you know you're going to have certain comedic things. And, and, and from that, I didn't mind any of the comedic stuff that was really taking place in the trenches because I think that's what soldiers had to do. It was their way of coping, you know. Um, you can call it the um, – the, the I'm trying to think the, the black comedy or the gruesomeness of it. You got to look at it at the yeah. Rouge comedy. Like, you know, you just got to make fun of the situation and the same thing with slim Somerville, you know, both of them played well with each other, did well in that parts to get you to tone about what it was like the day to day drudgery. And how do you get through this? Yeah. And then Willie, well, comes, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. Go. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, Slim Somerville had been in All Quiet on the Western Front, playing the same character, even. Um, so, I mean, he's the uh, kind of connecting tissue between the two films. Um, Whale did cast both of those actors. I mean, he did cast Andy Devine. He did cast Slim Somerville. So it's not like they were sort of inserted later. Um, but a lot of their later stuff, a lot of the less successful comedy elements were the, the scenes that were added later on. Um, just to give, I guess, you know, a little bit of, background and get a sense of you know what went on with the shooting of this film and how things kind of progressed just give you a sort of brief synopsis there um it was shot over a period of 15 weeks 73 73 days um between the late january and late april of 1937 that's a that's a long shoot it went 19 days over schedule um and even after that well was granted an additional three days of filming in may so he could get some additional stuff in the can so obviously at that point, they still have a lot of faith in the movie. Um, it had originally been budgeted at about uh, 770000 but it ended up going over a million. Um, and this is 1937. And this is not, you know, not the, uh, the depression is not that far in the rearview mirror and everything. It's a lot of money. Um, but again, I think they thought that with the All Quiet in the Western Front connection, the uh, the prestige of that and the popularity of that film that it was a, it was a safe bet. Um, at that point, uh, you know, the film was what he wanted it to be. Um, he was very happy with it initially. His original edit of the film ran nearly two hours. Um, but at that point, uh, Charles Rogers, the head of the studio booked it for some uh, screenings in late June. And he had a slight change of heart at that time. He ordered some changes, some cuts, 
And at that point, it was slimmed down to 105 minutes. But that was still basically the movie that Whale had in mind. That was the movie that he wanted to make. Um, it wasn't until after the uh, early preview screenings in June of 1937 that they started to realize, okay, maybe maybe we need to do something with this. And that's where they started going through the different things of uh, bringing in other directors, other writers, um, tinkering with the movie, cutting material out. Uh, basically, again, diluting everything, you know, taking off the edge, making it something that would be a little less potentially offensive because they had been in negotiations with a German consul, a guy named George Gisling, um, throughout the entire process. As soon as the, uh, the decision had been made to make the film of this book, uh, which was banned in Nazi Germany, incidentally, because of its strong anti-Nazi kind of sentiment. So obviously Gisling and his, uh, his, his people had good reason to believe that this wasn't something that they should be making a movie of. And they uh, issued a warning to a number of people connected with the film and with empty universe themselves saying, if there's anything that they said anti-German, but really what they meant was anti-Nazi in this movie, it would be banned in Germany. And anything that they did from that moment onward would be banned as well. That's, that's a big, you know, gamble to take. And, uh, Rogers at that point, I think, was willing to take a gamble on it. I think he thought that the uh, the American box office and so forth would be good enough. You know, it would it would be worth the gamble. Um, but as they got closer to the finish line and everything else, I think started to realize, okay, maybe this thing is a little bit too strong. Maybe it's a little too acerbic. Um, let's try to soften it a little bit. And that's where those initial cuts were made. I don't know exactly how long that original version ran, but it certainly ran over an hour and 45 minutes. So you know, somewhere in the range of two hours um, because a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of changes were made after that, which we'll talk about more as well. But the comedy elements that you're talking about are definitely very much a part of Wales' original concept. It was something that he learned in the war as a POW. I mean, you know, you've got to kind of find a way to laugh through the tragedy, you've got to find the humor in things. It's the only thing that's going to keep you sane. And so he has a lot of that in his film. Sometimes he overdoes it a little bit. My taste, I think a little Uno O'Connor goes a long way, but, you know, other people would disagree. I mean, I, I could deal with a little less shrieking personally, but some <laughs> people just love that. Um, but there's always these sort of little comedy character figures. Dwight Fry shows up in this. Um, you know, in a little unbilled cameo role. Again, a little bit of comedy with him. He, he likes putting Dwight Bryan there for sort of comic purposes. Um, but some of the other material that was added, you know, with, with Slim Somerville and Andy Devine and, and some of the, you know, the other humor doesn't really work. And you can definitely tell this was something that feels like it was added later in because that's exactly the case. It wasn't part of the original concept at all. One of the things... I liked about the comedy part, or not the comedy part, but the, Andy's character is he's set up as the comedy. He is the one that's going to be going and doing his scenes with that. But also he has one of the more, his mom's reaction to him coming back, I should say, has one of the more reactive things that how war changes and how she is complaining to Ernst and Ludwig what did you do to my Willie? You know, we, we sent him out as a boy and he comes back and now he's come back totally different and she's yelling at them. And then, and they explained it was the war. It was that, it was, you know, it was just those situations. But I think 
it kind of goes to show how when soldiers return back to their families, they expect them to be this way. Haven't seen them for who knows how long, you know, depending on how long, whichever war you take, you pick your, take your pick of in this case, three or four years. And he comes back a totally changed person, but even other things. Um, when Ernst is at home and he was sitting in the chair and he get back up and he says, it takes a while to get adjusted to sitting on a chair again and how none of them could fall asleep because they were in their own rooms again and had all this space and they were used to being bundled up next to each other and for years. And, 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 it, and I think that was something you still don't even see a lot of times in modern movies where the, the, the adjustment, they'll go right into um, other types of things that the post-traumatic stress get hit, but they don't go into these other parts of war. You know, that, that's the in-between stage, that adjusting back to society. And I think that, that, that to me was just so important to get for, for those like myself, I'm, I'm assuming you too, that have never been involved in a war. And it, it's hard for us to understand, but I think Whale did an excellent job of showing that in these little character moments, you know, with some, sometimes it's with a comedic element, sometimes it's a non-comedic element, but it gets the point across for the society to see this is what war is really like. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he had his own difficulties, as most everybody did, you know, with reassimilating himself back into, uh, you know, regular life and regular society. I mean, it's, it's got to be difficult. So I think that was I think that was one of the things that he really responded to. I think that was one of the big reasons he wanted to make this film. One of the things that James Curtis says in his book that's really interesting is that, well, um, you know, obviously had his big success with, with Journey's End, and that was something that uh, was a big, you know, uh, uh, kind of calling card for him when he first came out to work in Hollywood. And then he found himself doing things like, you know, the dialogue scenes on Hell's Angels for Howard Hughes and uh, Waterloo Bridge. And these weren't war films. You know, Waterloo Bridge isn't a war film per se. It's, it's, it's not a battle film. But they're also set against the backdrop of the war. And he was concerned about being too linked with that. He didn't want to become typecast as a war, kind of World War One specialist director. So he does a change of pace with Frankenstein. And then, of course, you know, well, horror as a genre didn't really exist at that time. Frankenstein, Dracula, the movies that kind of, you know, resulted in that. But he knew, I'm going to get typed with this type of subject matter. So, you know, again, we were going back before and talking about his, um, his versatility trying different things, I think, was very much to sort of show people I can handle other things. Um, but even within his films, you know, a movie like this, so yes, there are battle scenes. Um, there are, you know, really, I think, interesting kind of psychological character scenes. But there are also scenes of humor. I mean, it's not that Wales' original version was devoid of humor. It, it was meant to be there. Um, the, the bad part, obviously, is what they ended up doing where they added in all these extra scenes and things and kind of pulled out wholesale, you know, big scenes that he was really proud of, scenes he was really uh, particularly pleased with that were very important to the overall dramatic structure and integrity of the piece. Throw that out, throw that out. It's too dark. It's too this, too that. Let's put a little bit more in here because, uh, between Slim Somerville and Candy Divine because everybody's enjoying that stuff. And uh, it, it, it didn't... Um, it certainly didn't help the film at all, and certainly from his point of view, he thought it was absolutely destroyed. I believe uh, he never even saw what they did to it. I, I think he refused to actually look at the uh, the revised version, so that was unfortunate. But 
you know, I think those little moments, some of the things you're talking about, you know, with, with the use of the humor where it works and the whole emphasis on kind of trying to reassimilate into society and, you know, the, the post-traumatic aspect and everything else, that's the kind of material you can pull from it and say, you know, maybe what we have now is incredibly flawed, but if he had been left alone, maybe we'd be talking about this film much more reverently than we are because now it's at, at best it's kind of a forgotten footnote. Exactly. And I know you wanted to get into why, like the changes that happened. And I think now it's a mm-hmm. good time to go into because now we're talking about, let's get into, we, we talked about the good stuff and we might as well start talking about the flaws that developed. Cause I think, I think we've hit pretty much all the high notes except maybe the trial scene. Um, but, we can get to that later on. I think let's let's segue over into the flaws. Well, I mean, you know, again, it's uh, it's a film that was troubled. Um, there were a lot of reasons why things went over. There was a lot of location filming, and there was bad weather, um, a lot of rain, and things like that. Uh, you know, it ended up going very much over budget and over schedule, as I indicated. There was actually an accident during production. There was a special effects technician named George Daly who um, was involved with setting up uh, an explosion effect, and it went wrong, and he was killed. Um, it was reported in the February 1937 uh, Hollywood Reporter. Um, it was decreed an accidental death. But, uh, again, kind of getting back to the sort of, you know, sometimes rather callous nature of Whale, um, he didn't stop filming. I mean, once once uh, this guy was, at that point, wasn't dead. He was severely injured. He was carted off. Whale wanted to continue shooting. Um, he wasn't going to break for the day and, and, and let that kind of disrupt the already sort of choppy rhythm of things. So, you know, uh, was he being a professional or was he being callous? That's up to everybody else to decide. But he, this guy did end up dying. Um, so that ended up happening as well. That, that's also not a good thing, obviously, for anybody's point of view. He makes a film that, again, runs in the ra- range of two hours. Um, he turns it into Universal. Universal is initially okay with it. Then they decide, no, we're going to change it just a little bit. Stop it down to 105 minutes, but it's still basically his movie. Nothing has been added. Nothing has been put in by anybody else. At this point, the uh, the screenplay credit is written by R.C. Sheriff. There's nothing else. Um, after the preview screenings where they started getting some not entirely negative press. I mean, Hollywood reporters raved about it. They thought it was just phenomenal. Um, Variety and some of the other papers were a little bit more mixed. Don't forget, too, anytime you're following up on a big success like All Quiet on the Western Front, you've got a, you know, a high expectation to live up to. So Universal, basically, between the uh, kind of more negative reception it was getting and also the continued pressure from George Gisling and Germans and so forth, um, decided to give in and uh, chop the movie up. So at that point, about 12 minutes of Wales' original material was cut. Um, they went in and added seven new minutes of material, which were written by Charles Kenyon and directed by Edward Sloman. And John King and a couple of the other actors were brought back in to participate. Uh, the majority of the actors were not involved in the reshoots, however. And even the actors uh, were quoted by James Curtis saying they, they didn't understand what was going on. You know, the movie's already come out, and, you know, why are we doing this? And it was just, wow, you know, we need to make some adjustments. So adding in all this new material, um, that's the version that comes out later in 1937. That's the version that runs 100 minutes. That's available. This is the one that you can find on YouTube uh, in varying degrees of quality. There are 
some of them look and sound a little bit better than others, but basically none of them look or sound all that terrific. 1939 rolls around, they decided to put it out again. And at that point, I've never seen this version, but there was a 1939 reshoot uh, where Frank Tuttle was brought in to add some new material. And that version added in some voiceovers to sort of patch over some of the structural damage. And they actually brought in an actor to play Hitler in that version as well. I've never seen it, but I'm told that it runs somewhere in the range of 70 minutes. Now, that's pretty substantial if they went back and, you know, even just cut out a half an hour. That's bad enough. But they added in new material. So, I mean, it must have been pretty much cut in half by that point. Um, I've never seen that version. I don't think it exists anymore. But the, the sad irony of that is the fact that uh, that's the version that uh, Eric Maria Remarque saw in 1939 because uh, obviously the film had been banned in Germany. So he happened to catch up with it in 1939, absolutely despised it. He was so unhappy about it that when the rights, the Universal's rights to the story lapsed around 1941, 42, um, he withdrew the rights. And that's why the, the film is still in limbo. It's never been given a commercial release on video. Uh, it doesn't play on TV. It's one of the movies that kind of, you know, disappeared off the map. And what, Interesting is, I and I never realized this so recently, that uh, Remark was actually married to the actress Paulette Goddard. Um, you'll remember things like The Cat Canary. Um, she actually willed all of her husband's literary rights to New York University. And so they actually control the rights to The Road Back as a book and presumably might have something to say about what's going on with the film itself. So that could explain some of the reason why the movie is pretty much nigh on impossible to see any kind of, you know, decent version. So the version we can look at now, general release version from 1937 that runs 100 minutes, about 93 minutes of those are directed by James Well. The rest is directed by this other group of people. And it is what it is. I mean, again, we just have to kind of guess at it and, and see past the deficiencies. I would be interested to see that 70-minute version from 1939 just to see how awful it must be. But I, that that seems to have kind of dropped off the map altogether. From from a train wreck type experience, I guess it would be something interesting to see. I mean, I think both you and I are definitely in agreement. We'd love to see the version in the Library of Congress, um, to, to see the preview yeah. version that went out, and, and and get and get an idea of pretty much that's the best we're ever going to see of Wales' work on this movie. You know, that's the best version to see, which only a a handful of people, I think they did one, one showing of it and that was it. And I don't know how many people yeah. were in there. <laughs> I, I have a little bit about that. So I was digging around online and uh, there's been some confusion about that too. Now, again, according to James Curtis, the, the, the true original director's cut, you know, the one that we originally turned in, it was probably close to two hours. We're probably never going to see that. That's as impossible as seeing the long version of Ride of Frankenstein and all the stuff that's, that's gone, unfortunately. Studios in those days didn't tend to hold on to material. So what happened with uh, the Museum of Modern Art, um, there was a film preservationist named David Sten who found the preview cut at the UCLA Film and Television Archive and brought it to the attention of Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese has the Film Foundation, which is uh, devoted to preserving and uh, restoring films. Uh, Scorsese was able to drum up financing from NBC Universal and uh, Museum of Modern Art got involved, and they were able to do this restoration of the preview cut. Um, that's 
105 Minutes of Pure James Whale. That's his film. It's not exactly what he originally wanted it to be, but it was close enough, and I think it was a version he was reasonably happy with. Um, they did do a restoration of that. Now, they showed it originally in 2011, and uh, I was a bit confused because on their website, they listed 100 minutes running time. Uh, which is not in sync with the 105 minutes, but what they were doing was actually running both the preview cut and the general release cut. So mm. they showed it again in August of 2014. Uh, at, by that point, they've updated it to include a 105-minute version. Um, and then they screened both cuts again in June of 2016. So they've screened it several times uh, for those who are lucky enough to be in the area and have been able to go and see it. I've not seen any trace of any other screening since June of 2016. So, you know, we're going on six years that it's been kind of sitting there gathering dust. But the um, the the time and the money and everything was put into it to do a proper restoration. So you'd think eventually somebody at some point would say, you know, let's get this thing out on video. But again, going back to what I said about the whole rights aspect, um, I, I don't know to what extent that complicates things. I mean, obviously, Universal was involved in, in helping to fund the restoration, but do they continue to have any rights to it? It doesn't seem to be the case. So that's something that the lawyers have to work out, and sometimes that can take a very long time. Which, who knows, they might be doing that behind the scenes now. We just don't even know about it, and it's just taking, which would be a promising thing if they were doing that. This is mm -hmm. a speculation, listeners. We're, I'm just guessing here. We have nothing to go on, but... That would be a, a pleasant surprise if down the road suddenly it's like, oh, the rights, everything, the, the stars align, the rights, and boom, it's out. And um, that that would be yeah. a, a boon for movie fans. I hope so. I mean, I would love to see it happen. I know there was a there was a re re more recent version of Journey's End. I forget when it was made, but I was hoping when that happened that they would say, okay, let's let's go and restore the uh, the original version and of course that never ended up happening but again there i don't know you know is that even feasible i don't know i mean there there's a version floating around that's not in very good shape but you know just because it was transferred to tape at some point i don't know if that means that there's still film elements available so it, it may not necessarily be feasible at least here this is feasible it could happen um and you know the uh, the people who saw the uh, the screenings, the little bits of snippets, the reviews and things I found online. People who saw this uh, screening at the Museum of Modern Art, or one of the several screens at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, were impressed. So, you know, hope springs eternal, as they say. I hope that somebody someday can bring this out because I think it's something that really needs to happen. Oh, I agree. I agree with you. And I've, I've, having seen the film, and you and I both seen seen the. The bones are there, you know, like the structure is there. It's just parts of it don't work. But I think if you if you're able to look past it, you can see what was going on, and that that's the part that disappoints you is just knowing that it's not lost forever. The original original version's lost forever, but the preview version is restored and sitting in a vault, and it's just like so close yet so far away because it's the work is done for it to be released it's just a matter of getting that last legal hoop or whatever through and that way they can get that out there and that's that's the part that's kind of depressing yeah the the, the participation of scorsese the found, uh, film foundation is particularly heartening in that sense and i know he's very very uh 
uh, responsible about wanting to get these things out there and uh, preserved on, on video and give people an opportunity to see them. So I think there's reason for cautious optimism, and I hope that you know it happens uh, within our lifetime so we get a chance to see it. Um, I'd be very interested just reading about like the original ending, for example, I can picture that. And I think that's something that if you, if you, even if you, it was as simple as just taking away that hokey ending that we have now that, uh, Sloman added on that, that is so out of whack and out of tune with the rest of the picture. And you put that original ending back on, I think that would just really, really make all the difference in the world. I mean, well understood as most talented directors do that, you know, you need to grab the audience at the beginning and you need to send them out on a high note, you know, whether you're, you know, Billy Wilder with the great final laugh, you know, uh, in, um, you know, the great final lines and some like it hot and the apartment, things like that, you know, the great singer at the end or a great sort of, you know, gut punch of an ending. Um, I think that's, that's very important. Sometimes you can forgive kind of problems in the middle. If you can remember that really strong opening and ending. And so what we have now, the opening section of the film is actually, I believe, more or less the way he intended it to be. Um, it's whenever they're coming back and, you know, kind of getting back into society that things start to get rockier. And that's because that's where the changes were made. So I'd love to see it happen. I do think it's entirely possible. Um, I don't know anything about any work being done about it, but um, that's not to say that, you know, wheels aren't in motion. So fingers crossed. I agree. And and, and we all know that Whale was never – worried about a gut punch ending because if you look at journey's end waterloo bridge they both had that gut punch ending um type thing so this this would fall in with those types of works prior which was fitting with this type of movie you know and that's and that's how i go about endings if endings fit the movie that you're watching you know whether it's a good end whether it's a happy ending or a sad ending you know it's it's it fits the movie but if it if it's a movie that suddenly like um, pessimistic and looking at these things and suddenly has this happy thing. You're like, what? what? It just throws you off. It's like, what kind of ending is this? It doesn't, it's, it, it reminds me of a gymnast, a gymnast routine where they do everything and then they don't stick the landing. And you remember, what do you remember? You remember, Oh, they didn't stick the landing. You know, it's the last thing the judges see the last thing the audience see going out before the credits and before you go out the door. And it, and, you know, there's been so many films throughout history that are good and then the ending comes up and they don't do it. Or on the other hand, I've seen a lot of films where there's two thirds of it or three quarters of it were like mediocre to poor. And then it has this great ending, which also does not save the movie because you're just kind of like, really, you could have been doing that the whole movie. (laughs) Now you wait to bring it. Yeah, there, there's something to be said for that, but a, a good a good ending definitely does make all the difference. And unfortunately, this is a uh, this is a prime example. I mean, I'm okay with the way that um, that Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein end. I, I accept it. You know, I've I've been used to those all my life, so it's you know, it's okay. I can picture what it would have been like had it ended. You know, the way it originally would have ended, just you know, fading out with the burning mill at the end of Frankenstein and things going not nearly so happily at the end of Bride of Frankenstein, but I can accept it. Um, maybe, too, because those are more in a fantasy context, whereas this is dealing with something very hard-hitting. This is a war picture. Um, this is meant to have a very specific statement, and some of that statement is, if not completely diffused, it's at least being watered down. You know, you, it, It's there if you squint. You know, it, It's still there. You can get it. 
but you can tell that you know uh, in the cutting and in the uh, the reshoots and the shuffling and everything else, Universal's kind of um, done some gymnastics there to kind of make it a little less offensive where it needed to be maybe offensive and it needed to really kind of uh, pack a very specific uh, you know punch. I mean, 1937 things that are going on in Germany, you know, the war, um, you know, America's entry into the war is only a few years away. Um, I think Whale was was entirely justified in wanting to be more truthful to what uh, Remark had written. And certainly also Remark had good reason to have written what he had written as well. So, you know, but um, it's good to know that even though the, um, the preview cut isn't quite originally what he wanted it to be entirely, it's at least got that ending it at least has other things in it that he was upset were removed so again that's one of those things you know i don't feel like i've really seen the film yet um you know partly because i've seen such a bad looking copy and where was such a visually extravagant director and we should mention that um this is the last time that he worked with john eschall the cinematographer who unfortunately was a um um, not even really at this point a functioning alcoholic. He was doing extraordinary work, but there were a lot of stories about him just being falling down drunk on the set, and he ended up being replaced on it by George Robinson, um, who did most of the interior stuff. Uh, George Robinson, of course, went on to do a lot of the universal horror films like uh, Son of Frankenstein and The Mummy's Tomb and, and uh, The Scarlet Claw and, and a lot of things like that. Dave's a great cinematographer, too. But, you know, there is some really, really great, um, you know, moving camera work that we see in this film, typical whale, and also a lot of that sort of uh, score of lighting, um, where a lot of light and shadow and, and things like that. Oh, that's where a lot of the retakes stand out as well, because they tend to be more flatly shot and flatly framed, so they're not nearly as interesting or read visually. So, um, yeah, I don't feel like I've really properly seen this movie quite yet. And what do you think of the music? Because one thing I want to mention... Dimitri Tumpkin yeah. is one of yeah. the great composers in film history, you know, and did so many scores. I think if I remember it, he did the high and the mighty and, and, mm -hmm. and the credit list is awesome and, and forever. But I mean, it's, it was, this is one, I think the earliest movie I think I've, I've now seen where his work was there. And I was, I was shocked when I was watching the thing. It's like music. I was like, Whoa, they got, you know, because you know, you know, he's around, but it's just, it was, it was a pleasant surprise to see him in the credits and to get to hear his music. Yeah, Whale um, had heard an earlier score he had done. I can't remember which one it was. I don't know if it was Lost Horizon or something that he had done. Um, but Whale specifically asked for him and was actually very happy with his with his score. Whale, of course, was very much involved with uh, the soundtrack for his films. He loved using. Uh, Franz Waxman, for example, of course, did that extraordinary score for the uh, Bride of Frankenstein. He did other films for him as well. Um, so, you know, he earlier he'd done Mad Love, which is a great uh, Peter Lorre calling five horror film from MGM. Um, and Will had heard the music for, I, I do believe it was Lost Horizon, and said he wanted him to do the soundtrack for this film. It's a very good score. Uh, it's very effective. And uh, I think, you know, one of the one of the things that's also effective too is sometimes the lack of music. Certain scenes really work really very very well. Uh, I think there was some controversy over whether there should be scoring or no scoring over the battle scene, for example. Um, you know, and, and I think sometimes a lack of music can work really well. So it's not one of those scores that is laid on so thick that it's constantly telegraphing every single emotion. 
but it does have some really very powerful themes that underline the drama and, and bring out the uh, the best in the material. So no, I think it's a very very good book. That's what I mean. I was just when I saw his credit, and I was like, this is going to be something that for me it'd be like one of the earliest things I've ever seen in him movie wise that he'd done, and I was so happy, you know, because it's like you see later work, and sometimes you get a composer. They come out of the gate slow, and then they get they get, they get the momentum. And other composers come out of the gate strong and stay and then fade away, and then some stay strong the whole time. And he's one of those composers I think that came out of the gate strong and stayed strong for the majority of his work. You know, and uh, it's it's like every everybody, music, art, humor. It's always subjective to each individual. But I think for this particular movie, it definitely added to it. And I'm like you in that I don't need to have a constant theme music playing every time in a movie. Nowadays, it seems to be almost, most a lot of movies are overly saturated with music. And it's to the point where it's almost too much. I like to think that the listeners and the film watchers are intelligent enough to be able to figure it out. And I don't know if, if you've ever done this, Troy, but I've done this with some films where I'll turn the sound off and just watch the acting after, if, for a movie I've seen before, because my theory always is, if a filmmaker is doing a good job, you should be able to figure out or know roughly what's going on. You might not know every detail, because obviously something's in dialogue, but you'd be able to have an idea what the emotions everybody's feeling, what the mood the filmmaker's trying to get across from just watching the action without any supplemental material. And I think that's what the good part about some filmmakers that trust the absence of sound, trust their ability to be able to invoke that through the cinematographer and the actors and the script and get that across. And I think, I don't know, have you ever done that where you turned the sound off and just watched it just to see just the acting, just the facial expressions, emotions? Yeah, I've done that on occasion. Um, there's also examples of, um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, I'm, I'm a fanatic of uh, Mario Bava, for example, and uh, Bava, some of Bava's films were re-scored for American releases, and um, usually by Les Baxter, who was a composer who tended to really lay music on very, very thick, uh, wall-to-wall carpet scoring, uh, I tend to call it, and um, to compare the way that that score is versus the original way it was scored for the Italian version is very interesting, because very often there was a lot less music and a lot more sort of atmospheric, ambient sound and things like that. So I always prefer that approach versus the wall-to-wall carpet score. Um, I mean, Thompson obviously is his his credits go a mile along. He worked with Hitchcock uh, several times. He worked with Howard Hawks numerous times. Uh, a great composer, obviously, but um, you know, it, sometimes scores. And I, I would agree with you. Sometimes I, I tend to think of like Hans Zimmer, for example, as somebody who just tends to really smother a movie with too much music. I mean, when when Zimmer's scores work really well, like on the Ridley Scott films like Gladiator and uh, Hannibal. Uh, it's fine, but there are the times where it's, it's almost this constant sort of groaning. Um, or John Williams, after a certain point, too. John Williams, uh, I like, I tend to like his earlier stuff, but after a certain point, it tends to become a little too sort of pompous and too too big uh, all the time. Um, to me, sometimes that actually undercuts it. Whereas I think sometimes it's meant to really bring out more emotion. I think sometimes you can kill it by doing that by just layering on too much music. I mean. You never know. Some films do call for more music. They need it. And other films, you can get away with very little music. I mean, famously on 
the birds, Hitchcock, Fox, Bernard Herman, and just to sort of orchestrate electronic bird noises and things like that, which does create a kind of, you know, uh, oral tapestry for the film that's very effective, but without the conventional kind of scoring. Um, you know, a more recent example was No Country for Old Men, where there's no real music in the film per se. I mean, it's, it, it, but there is every now and again sort of slight electronic drones and things in the background. It's not music in the way that we tend to think of music, but it kind of helps create an unease in certain scenes, and that's very effective too. So, you know, um, I think Whale in general was somebody who, again, because he wasn't somebody who just took the film through the shooting and then moved on to the next film and had nothing to do with post-production. He was there the whole way through. He was there with the editor. Uh, Ted Kent uh, was his regular editor, worked on this film. Um, Ted Kent did not do the later edits. Uh, that was his assistant came in and did it. The whale had nothing to do with that. But he would be involved with the placement of the music, um, how loud the music is, you know, how soft it is. These are things that are very important that if you have a director who really cares about the details like Whale did, you're going to get that throughout his films. And that's, you know, I think very true of this movie, at least as, as best we can tell from what we have to work with now. Oh, exactly. And um, do you have anything else you want to bring up about the film? Because I, I pretty much have covered all the stuff I wanted to talk about. I'll just give a quick shout out to Lionel Atwell, not that he's in it very much, um, but of course he's also in the other film that we talked about, Great Garrick, in a much better role. Um, but he's the prosecutor here in the courtroom scene. Um, yeah, he doesn't have a lot to do, but he's fine as usual. You know, he always uh, does work, good work, uh, fiddling around with the monocle and things like that. You know, finding little bits of business to enliven his character. So you know, and some of the usual kind of universal supporting player character faces who show up. I mentioned Dwight Price, for example. Um, you know, there, there are other people as well. I, I'm told that uh, Edward Van Sloan is in it somewhere. I did not spot him. Maybe he was cut from the movie. I'm not entirely sure. But um, yeah, that's part of the joys that I get with watching a lot of these films where you have these actors that are very familiar faces and it's always a lot of fun to see them and they always bring something to it. So, um, you know, again, just the belabor the point once again it's a, it's a tragedy that what we have is in such bad shape it's a tragedy that it does not really reflect what he wanted um this is pre-alan smithy i'm sure if that hadn't been an option at the time he would have done that he would have taken his name off of this film um that really wasn't done back in those days so but what they also didn't do was add in you know even though they add in um you know the other writer to the screenplay credit they don't add in additional scenes by you know so and so so um, it's one of the unfair things that obviously people would watch this film in 1937 and think it was all the work of James Whale, which it was not. So, um, you know, bear that in mind if you decide to watch it. Um, there's still good stuff in it. There's interesting things about it. Um, you know, the, the bare bones are there, as you said before. And hopefully at some point that uh, preview cut will become commercially available. Well, I agree with you, and the only thing I want to mention now that you brought that up is Noah Barry Jr. is in the movie, mm-hmm. and it's nice seeing him when he's young because I always remember him from the Rockford Files playing Jim Rockford's dad, you know, growing up, watching that show all the time. So it's it's nice when you get to see some of these character actors when they're older, and you get to see them when they're younger, and it's just it's, it's interesting because you, you try to figure them out. It's like, where are they? And it takes you a while to figure it out because – they're they're forty years younger or thirty years younger than they were when you saw when you remember seeing them and that's 
it makes it nice to know that he had a long career and was in a lot of different work. Yeah, I mean that's like if if you're if you go back and watch All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, for the first time, it's it's amazing to see Lou Ayers. If you're familiar with Lou Ayers from later things like Salem's Lot, where he plays the school teacher and things like that, you know, I tend to think of him as this little old man. Um, but he, you know, he's the lead in in All Quiet on the Western Front. But anybody who is um, tuned into this and has seen this film, um, by all means, watch that. That's a great film. You know, if you've never seen it, it's, it's well worth seeing. But yeah, it is fun sometimes. You do tend to think that some of these people uh, were born middle-aged, and, and some of them looked like they were. I mean, some of them never really looked young. But uh, yeah, Noah Berry certainly showing up in this is a, is a nice surprise if you're a, if you're a fan of sort of 70s and, and 80s TV things that he was a part of. And again, I want to thank you, Troy, for joining me to talk about The Road Back on this bonus movie episode with the James Whale retrospective. Well, thank you for having me. It's always fun talking about James Whale. And, um, well, Troy, after we're done recording this, I'm going to have a roll of die and have you do an episode proper where you get to pick the movie and we'll roll the genre. And that way we'll have you come back in a future episode where we'll have you in the normal traditional mode instead of um, tying you into a particular film. You'll get the one to be to pick it. Sounds good. All right. Otherwise, listeners, thank you for joining in. And um, don't forget the ep- the, next, um, the second to last episode of James O. Retrospective will be Wives Under Suspicion with Rod Barnett, and then we'll have the roundtable. And uh, I hope everybody's been following along and joining as it's been coming out every so often, you know, as we go through to James O. Retrospective and enjoying this series. Everybody have a good day. Bye. I again want to thank Troy for joining me for The Road Back. And again, we have one more episode left of the James Earl Retrospective Series, which will be coming out in a couple of weeks, where Rod Burnett will be joining me for Wives Under Suspicion. If you have any feedback, please email us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us comments on our Facebook page. The song that we're going to end the episode with is a German soldier song. I'm going to try to say its name. Wo all straben enden, which... You can't tell unless you know German, but it's pretty much a very sad song. Some of the German soldiers who were dying in the trenches during World War I. Uh, for those that are wondering what the lyrics are, I'm also going to post it on our Facebook page and my Facebook page because it has the lyrics there for you so you can understand exactly what they were saying. And I thought it was an appropriate song for this particular movie. Hope everybody has a good day. And now for the song. Bye.
Oh. 